Coming up, a message from the pulpit of Bethel Primitive Baptist Church in Calabash, North Carolina, by Elder Michael Goins. For information about Bethel Church, please visit our website at BethelPBC.us. By faith Enoch was translated that he should not see death, and was not found, because God had translated him. For before his translation he had this testimony that he pleased God. Some years ago there was a television show that was popular called Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. I wonder if you ever saw that show. It talked about these multimillionaires and billionaires and how they had several palatial estates and palaces and yachts and jewelry and enjoyed various forms of entertainment lifestyles of the rich and famous. Now, I don't live that lifestyle. I didn't then. I don't now. And I don't know that I would want to. There was a time when I wanted to be rich and famous, but I don't think that I would like that responsibility. There are other people today who live what they call the keto lifestyle. You may have heard of that the keto lifestyle. It's a lifestyle that is based around their diet. There are others who base their lifestyle around their exercise regimen. They are uh, gym rats and are bikers and joggers and that is the number one thing in their life and everything else is interpreted in terms of physical fitness and exercise. But Hebrews 11 teaches us that the just shall live by faith, that the Christian is to live a faith lifestyle. Our entire lives, in other words, are to be governed by our faith. Not just our religious lives, but even our families and our businesses and our recreation and social life and Every part of us is to be mandated or governed by faith. The just shall live by faith. This is a lifestyle. And I think it's helpful for us to think of Christianity as a way of life, a lifestyle. What does it mean to be a Christian? It means that every part of our lives is lived trusting in God based on the Word of God and leaving the outcome in his sovereign hands. The just shall live by faith. And you know, Paul lived this kind of lifestyle. Galatians 2.20, the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. One of the things that we are learning in Hebrews 11 is that faith is more than just mere belief. We might ask the question, what is your faith? And an individual will answer, I'm of the Baptist faith. Someone else would say, I'm of uh, the uh, Presbyterian faith. Or someone puts it all into one category, I'm of the Christian faith. I believe the basics of Christianity. This is what I believe. But Hebrews 11 teaches us that faith is more than just an intellectual assent to the truth, more than mere belief. But Hebrews 11 describes faith in practice, or faith in action, if you please, 
Here is a description of what faith looks like. You may remember the words of James 2.20, which says, faith without works is dead. Faith without action is dead. Someone says, I believe in God. Well, does that translate into how you face each day and face the future? That's the question. For the devils believe also and tremble. They have an intellectual assent to the facts of truth and reality. But faith, in the biblical sense of the term, is meant to lead to works. In other words, it's a lifestyle. Okay, that's our basic premise this morning. And I want you to notice in the lives of these three people, Abel, Enoch, and Noah, how that faith involves our entire lives. Abel teaches us that faith involves how you worship. For verse 4 in Hebrews 11 says, By faith Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. Faith involves how you worship. Enoch teaches us that faith concerns your daily behavior, your moment-by-moment conduct and goals in life. Verse 5, By faith Enoch walked with God. It says he had this testimony that he pleased God. And this is a lifestyle. Every day, Enoch lived to please God. So Abel teaches us faith speaks of our worship, Enoch of our day-to-day lives, and Noah teaches us that faith has to do with making preparation for the future. Verse 7, by faith Noah warned by God of things not seen as yet, prepared an ark for the saving of his house. So you're familiar with these stories. And by the way, each of these stories goes back to the first chapters of the Bible. Abel's stories in Genesis 4. Enoch's stories in Genesis 5. And Noah's story is in Genesis 6 through 9. So this lifestyle of faith is something that is, may I say, very rare in the modern world. Most people are living a secular lifestyle. Wouldn't you say that? In the culture around us, most people today are living for houses, lands, you know, possessions. And they think only in terms of the here and now. Everything is about the economy, about politics, about physical health, about restaurants and recreation. Their whole lives are built around the world. And the Lord is often added on as an extra, you know, just one on the list. And every once in a while people say, well, he's number one and everything else comes after. But you see, here's the concept in Hebrews 11. Our faith is to govern not just our worship, but it's to govern our day-to-day lives. It's to govern our view of the future. Abel, Enoch, and Noah teach us that much. And I have to say that the lifestyle of faith is very unusual. One of the things that's interesting when you look at the stories of Abel, Enoch, and Noah in Genesis 4 through 9, each of these men had an antagonist. That is, Abel's life of faith is set in contrast to Cain. You remember the story of Cain and Abel, Adam and Eve's boys? It came to pass, says Genesis 4, that in the process of time, Abel brought an offering unto the Lord, a firstling of his flock. He made a sacrifice. And Cain also came to church that day. Cain also brought an offering 
the fruit of his ground, a harvest that he brought to the Lord. But unto Abel and his offering, God had respect. God was pleased. But unto Cain and his offering, God had not respect. And we might say, what right does God have to distinguish? Because both of the boys were religious. What right does God have to say one was right and another was wrong? Well, he's God. And he's the maker of them all. And he's the one who has prescribed how worship is to be done. And you say, well, maybe Cain didn't know. Well, how did Abel know what God required? Our text in Hebrews 11 verse 4 says, By faith Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. More excellent sacrifice. Who said what sacrifice was acceptable and which one wasn't? Why was Abel's a more excellent sacrifice? And the answer is God had revealed his will when he slew the animal and clothed Adam and Eve in the garden. You remember in Genesis 3 that Adam and Eve sinned and they tried to cover their nakedness. Suddenly they were aware of their shame and their guilt and they tried to cover their nakedness with fig leaves. But those fig leaves have one problem. It doesn't take long after you've sewn them together that they start to dry up and shrink and crumble away, right? And the Lord remedied their shame by slaying a lamb, an animal. And he took the coats of skin from that animal and he clothed Adam and Eve. The shedding of blood. And may I say that in that action, God told his creatures what kind of worship he requires, what kind of sacrifice pleases him, that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. Money will not save your soul. Good works will not save your soul. You, you say, I'm going to do works of charity. That's a sacrifice that does not have atoning value. The only meritorious sacrifice that pleases God is an innocent dying as the substitute for the guilty. A little lamb. You say, well, what had that little lamb ever done? Nothing immoral, nothing sinful, nothing wrong. It was innocent. But you see, when the lamb is slain in the stead of the guilty pair, Adam and Eve, I dare say God is revealing the kind of sacrifice that pleases him. The only thing that will atone for our sins before a holy God is the substitutionary work of the Lord Jesus Christ. This lamb pointed forward to the lamb of God who would come to take away the sins of the world. So Abel has an antagonist, Cain. Abel offered his sacrifice by faith. Cain offered his sacrifice by self-will. That is, Abel brought his sacrifice according to God's word, but Cain approached God on his own terms. Now, Cain knew better, but he had an I-can-do-as-I-please attitude, and whatever is at hand should be acceptable to God. And instead of doing things God's way, Cain decided to exert his own independence from God. And you know, mankind has been following the way of Cain since the beginning of time. They've been trying to innovate this maverick spirit. And it's part of our fallen nature that every one of us has this desire to say, well, I'm going to cut corners. I'll do it the way I want to. You remember when Aaron's two boys, Nadab and Abihu, decided to offer strange fire on the altar? Now, God had told them how to burn incense. 
He said, you're to take the fire off of the altar. But Nadab and Abihu kindled strange fire. They brought their own matches with them. <laughs> and instead of taking the fire off the altar to burn incense, they decided to kindle their own fire, and God struck them dead on the spot. Now, perhaps you say that's a little extreme, Brother Mike. But God explains himself to Aaron and Moses when he said, I will be sanctified. Even Moses was displeased that the Lord was so extreme and severe. But God said, I will be sanctified in all them that draw nigh unto me. And before all the people, I will be glorified. In other words, I mean business. This is not child's play. This is not yours to innovate and to make up your own rules as you go. You know, it's his football. Can I say it like that? You remember on the playground, it's my football. I'm going home if you're not going to play by my rules. I want to tell you, dear friends, that God is the creator, and he has set the boundaries. So Abel acted on God's revelation, and his antagonist is Cain. You come to the next person in Genesis chapter 5, Enoch, and his antagonist is a man named Lamech. Now, if you look at the end of Genesis chapter 4, listen to what Lamech says. You remember after Cain slew his brother Abel, I mean, think of the first fratricide when Cain killed his brother because he was jealous. He was angry. God said, if you do well, you'll be accepted. That is, if you just follow the rules instead of claiming autonomy and making up your own rules as you go. And by the way, again, that's the essence of sin. Man declaring his independence from God and trying to be his own God instead of being submissive to the divine authority. And Cain was angry and he was wroth and he slew his brother Abel. Now, 1 John 3.12 tells us that Cain was of that wicked one, the devil. And in his offspring, there's a man born named Lamech, who's the seventh from Adam on Cain's side. But see, Adam and Eve had another child in Genesis 4 or Genesis 5.1 named Seth. And through Seth, his line, there's a fellow named Enoch that's born. And he's the seventh from Adam on Seth's side. Lamech is the seventh generation from Adam in the family tree as it goes through Cain. And you have these two contrasting figures in Genesis chapter, the end of chapter 4 and the end of chapter 5. Lamech says, I have slain a man to my wounding. Here's the second murder recorded in the Bible. I've slain a man to my wounding. That is, I've killed somebody for hurting me. I don't know what kind of hurt he had suffered from this individual, whether it was financial hurt or reputational hurt or actual physical harm. But yet Lamech took matters into his own hands and he took another man's life following in the steps of his predecessor, his forefather Cain. He was angry and he killed this fellow. And listen to how braggadocious he is about it. I've slain a man to my wounding, a young man to my hurt, and if Cain shall be avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy-sevenfold. In other words, if Cain got by with it, I will too, even more so. In other words, this man is arrogant. He's proud. He is almost taunting God. In contrast to this violent kind of self-preservation mindset and approach to life, Enoch walked with God and begat Methuselah, and all the days of Enoch were 360 and five years, and Enoch walked with God, and he was not. Now, that's an interesting way to describe that. For Genesis 5 is the obituary chapter of the Bible. 
You'll notice in your reading of Genesis 5, it says Adam lived 930 years and he died. Seth lived 912 years and he died. Enos and Canaan and Mahalil and Jared, they all lived and he died and he died and he died. That doleful refrain is repeated over and again in Genesis chapter 5 until we come to this man Enoch that says, And Enoch walked with God and he was not because God took him. <laughs> now our text in Hebrews 11:5, the Holy Spirit explains that he was translated. You know what the word translate means? It means to pick up from one place and to put in another. Our Bibles have been translated from Hebrew and Greek. Old Testament was written originally in Hebrew. The New Testament was written originally in the language of Greek. And they've been translated, that is, scholars in Hebrew and Greek have taken the words and have translated them into the English equivalent. They've picked up the words from this language and put them in a language that you and I can understand. When Enoch, it says, was translated, it means that he was picked up from earth and he was taken immediately to heaven without passing through the experience of death. Now, death is the rule, isn't it? Because of sin, the wages of sin is death. And that's why we have obituaries. And he died, and she died, and he died, and he died. But suddenly, here's somebody that is just walking along one day, and suddenly, people go to look for him, and he's no, nowhere to be found. He was not. I can just imagine his wife and children. Have you seen dad today? I saw him this morning, but I haven't seen him since about 10 a.m. Well, it's already past dinner time, and uh, he hasn't come in yet. Where is he? Last I saw, he was walking with God. Well, let's go see. And we go out to where he was, the last person that saw him. He was over in that meadow, and we go to look for him. There's no trace of him. You talk about the ultimate missing person, <laughs> Enoch. I'm sure his face was on every milk carton in the ancient world. He was not because God took him. And it was a curiosity. Now, can you imagine that somebody is just there one day and then the next day, I haven't seen him lately. Where is he? I don't know. Nobody knows. And the only solution is, my friends, that God translated him. Now, that's an exception to the rule. That has only happened one other time that I know of in human history with a man named Elijah. And Elijah, the prophet, and Elisha were walking one day, and Elijah said that he wanted the spirit of the Lord God of Elijah to rest upon him. And Elijah said to Elisha, if you see me when I go, then your desire will be granted. And of course, what happened is at a certain point, the angels of God in chariots of fire swung low and picked up Elijah and transported him to heaven. Now, he was escorted in a royal fashion to the palace of the great king. This faithful servant left this world without dying, and Elisha saw it, and the mantle of Elijah fell upon Elisha, and he went forth in the spirit and power of Elijah from that day forth, but suddenly Elijah was not. He was translated. You say, will that ever happen to anyone else? Yes, my friends, when Jesus comes again, there will be people who are alive and remain 
who are still physically walking upon this earth when he comes back, and they too will be taken to heaven. They'll be caught up together with the dead in Christ, which will rise first. Then we which are alive and remain, says 1 Thessalonians 4.13, shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. So Abel had an antagonist in Cain. Enoch had an antagonist, or a contrast, an opposite, in Lamech. And while Cain is walking according to the course of this world, Abel is walking by faith. And while Lamech is living a secular lifestyle, a wicked, violent, vicious kind of focus in life, I've killed somebody that hurt my feelings. And I've taken vengeance on him and I'm going to get by with While he's in that mindset, here is a godly man, Enoch, who's walking with God every day. And I'm telling you, these people are rare. They're a remnant. There were not a bunch of Abel's in history. There have not been a bunch of Enoch's. Here is a godly remnant whose lifestyle was characterized by faith instead of by the world. And then Noah. He also has an antagonist. In fact, while Noah preaches to the world, he's called in 2 Peter 2.5 a preacher of righteousness, it says Noah condemned the world by faith. But here's the point that I drive home this morning. In a world where most people are living their lives by a different set of rules than Abel, Enoch, and Noah, yet here are the rare exceptions, the godly remnant, the few, the faithful few on the narrow way while the majority is walking the broad way that leads to destruction. And I'm asking you today, dear friends, are you and I going to be like Abel and Enoch and Noah? Will our entire lifestyle be governed by our faith? Though it makes us stand out and it may subject us to persecution like Abel experienced, it will certainly lead to an idea of mystery about us like Enoch's case did. The rest of the world will think that you're a strange character, something's a little off about you. You know, David said in Psalm 71, 7, I am a wonder unto many. He means by that people look at me and they say, I just can't figure him out. You know, he's a little different than the rest of us. I mean, he's a religious fanatic like Enoch. But yet, my friends, David knows the secret of his. He said, even though I'm a wonder unto many, yet thou, Lord, art my refuge. You see, he has a conviction about him that the reason he can do the impossible, the reason he doesn't respond to life like everybody else does, when crises come, he doesn't get hysterical. When grief strikes, he deals with it with a certain hope. You know, he doesn't sorrow as others who have no hope. He has real life experiences, but he's able to deal with it all in moderation. He doesn't get swept up in movements and fads. But there's a consistency and a steadiness about this, about the believer's life. You see, he's different. The doctrine of the godly remnant is a very important Bible doctrine. Maybe you're here today and you say, Brother Mike, I'm trying to live a Christian life, but it seems like nobody else around, very few actually share my passion. I'm all alone. We're just a little flock. And may I remind you, my beloved, that God has reserved to himself 7,000 who've not bowed the knee to the image of Baal. That is, there are others out there who are as interested in pleasing God, serving God, in whose minds this is a priority. 
but yet we don't always see them and we feel to be very much alone, don't we? Like Elijah, Lord, they've killed every one of your prophets and I only am left. I love the doctrine of the godly remnant and let's not forget it as this world waxes worse and worse and we are increasingly more and more in the minority, let us never forget that God has promised I will leave in the midst of you an afflicted and poor people and they shall trust in the name of the Lord. For the remnant of Israel shall not do evil. These are people who are passionate about Christ, about his church, even though it's not popular anymore. These are the Abels, the Enochs, the Noahs, in the midst of an apostate and godless culture and society. Abel's counterpart was wicked, and he wanted to worship in his own way. Enoch's peers were secular and vicious and violent. The world in which Enoch lived was an ungodly world. In fact, we have one word of teaching from the lips of Enoch recorded for us in Scripture. Jude verse 14. Listen to what it says. Enoch the seventh from Adam prophesied about these, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh. Now, I think that's interesting. Here's one of the first men that has ever lived in history talking about the final event in history. Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints. Enoch is preaching the second coming of Jesus Christ. And that's what we're looking forward to today, right? My beloved, the brightest star on the Christian landscape and horizon is the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Redeemer's glorious return. He's coming again. And when he comes again, that will solve all of our problems. And I'm hopeful. I'm looking forward to it optimistically. I'm expecting, I'm looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ. Enoch, one of the first people who's ever lived, lived in an apostate world, and he said, I can't wait till the Lord comes, and here's what's going to happen when he comes. Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed and of all their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have uttered against him. What's the key word in that verse? Ungodly. <laughs> right? All their ungodly deeds which they've ungodly committed, and of all their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have uttered against him. Yes, my friends, may I say the world in which Enoch lived was ungodly, much like our world today. Do you think our world is ungodly? All you have to do is watch about 10 seconds of the evening news, to learn that the world in which we live has lost its moral bearings. Our world, my beloved, is in a moral freefall. It has lost its way. Today, men are calling good evil and evil good. Darkness they're putting for light. Light is being put for darkness. That is, they have just reversed values. They've put the value system of the Bible and of just the moral law. They've turned it on its head. And my beloved, may I say, in a world that's ungodly like that, Enoch stands out as an exception. He walked with God. So here's my message today. Your faith and my faith should govern our worship like Abel. Worship is a part of life, isn't it? Everybody's going to worship something or someone. You say, oh, I know people that don't worship anything. Well, just because they don't go to church or to synagogue or to the Buddhist temple doesn't mean that they're not religious. They may be worshiping self, right? They may be worshiping comfort and ease. 
They may be worshiping pleasure. People worship profit. They worship gold, money. They worship pleasure. They worship sensuality. They worship privilege and prestige and position. You know, they worship many different idols. Everybody is religious. You take a lesson, a college course in anthropology, you will learn that every culture is intrinsically religious, innately religious. That is, they're worshiping a totem pole, they're calling on spirits, they're worshiping dead ancestors, they're worshiping animals, they're worshiping nature, they're worshiping something. And my beloved lifestyle Christianity says that our worship is determined by our biblical faith. We worship according to God's pattern, for God is serious about how he intends to be worshipped. Abel teaches us that much. But you know, there's more to life than just worship, right? We worship publicly one day a week usually. But you say, what about Monday afternoon? What about Wednesday morning? What about Thursday night? Every day our faith should permeate, and Enoch teaches us that. Enoch's life teaches us that faith determines every nuance of our daily lives. Now, I want to real quickly go back to Genesis 5. Listen to verses 21 to 24, the story of Enoch. Genesis 5, in this obituary chapter of the Bible, says this, And Enoch lived sixty and five years, and he begat Methuselah. Now, you'll know the name Methuselah because he is the person who lived the longest in the Bible. 969 years. Say, is, is that for real, Brother Mike? Absolutely. In the antediluvian world, the world before the flood, you see, the flood changed an awful lot of things. And in the world before the flood, these folks lived into the 900s. Adam, 930 years. Seth, 912 years. Methuselah lived 969 years. Can you imagine how old he was when he had his midlife crisis? <laughs> 969 years. <laughs> oh, anyway, when Enoch was 65 years old, he... His wife gave birth to Methuselah. And I want you to watch this. And Enoch walked with God after he begat Methuselah 300 years. The birth of this child became a turning point in his lifestyle, the way he lived. And you know the birth of a child will often become a turning point in a person's life. Suddenly, you realize, I've got to grow up now. <laughs> I cannot be a kid any longer. I heard a couple of my preacher friends talking recently about when children were born to their family and suddenly one of them said, I've got to put this game away. You know, I've, I've been playing these games every day. And I'm not saying that games are intrinsically evil, but there is a time when you're a child, you think as a child, you know, and when you become a man, you have to put away childish things. And when Methuselah was born, Enoch, from that point forward, it says he walked with God. And I've seen it happen in churches. I've seen people have children and suddenly they become more serious. And it should be that way. It should happen like that. They suddenly realize that they are responsible for these little ones. And you know, the first time that little one shows his old nature or her old nature, for little children have a depraved nature because they, are, they came from sinful parents. And the first time you see that, you think, I've got to get these kids in church, <laughs> right? Enoch suddenly starts walking with God. Now, what does it mean to walk with God? Just like you would take a walk with your husband or your wife or your sibling or your 
dad or your mom or your friend. Walking speaks of companionship, friendship, close, intimate fellowship. As you take a walk together, you can visit, you can share with one another. There's an intimacy about that. And I want to say this about Enoch. He walked with God even though, first of all, he had the same challenges that we do. Now maybe you're here this morning and you say, Brother Goins, it is impossible for me to live closely to the Lord when I have so many distractions. I mean, I've got this, this, little, contra- this little machine that lives in my pocket that keeps me distracted and I've got the television and the internet and the world all around me and in a culture like ours, it's not possible to walk with God. I want you to remember, Enoch was just like us. Enoch walked with God even though he had the same domestic responsibilities we do. He had children. He had a family. He said, I've got these kids. They keep me on the run. Our family's a dysfunctional family. We're going to dysfunction and dat function. You know, we've got so many irons in the fire. Well, Enoch, my friends, showed us that it's possible to live in fellowship with God, even though you have domestic responsibilities. He must have had tremendous peer pressure, for he was in the minority. He lived in a godless and apostate society, as we've already talked about from Jude 14. And yet, he walked with God consistently for 300 years. That is, every day when he got up, his first thoughts were toward the Lord. Now, I wonder, do the words of David in Psalm 5-5 ring true to your experience when he said, My voice thou shalt hear in the morning, O Lord. In the morning I will lift my prayer unto thee and will look up. You get out of bed in the morning and the first thoughts in your mind are, thank you, Lord, for a new day. I'm a child of the King. I need you today. Let's spend some time in prayer. Let's read God's word and gain some wisdom. Get my mind thinking biblically. You say, Brother Goins, who has time for that? Well, Enoch sure didn't. And you sure don't. But my beloved, it's crucial if you're going to be the exception to the rule. Because faith determines our moment-by-moment, day-to-day lives. It's a lifestyle. It's a lifestyle. Now, maybe you're here today, you say, that's why we have a pastor, to live a holy life so that we don't have to. (laughs) No, I can't live life for you. I can't mediate between God and you. You have one mediator between you and God, just like I do, and that's Jesus Christ. And you, my beloved, need the Lord in your life, just like I need him in my life. This book should be your daily light and lamp for your feet. Thy word is a lamp to my feet, a light to my path. You ought to read your Bible, and you know this. I'm not going to scold you about it, but I know that each one of us fall far short of what we should be doing. My beloved, spend time in God's word every day. Spend time in prayer. Do you have a quiet place where you can just go, whether it's a special chair that you can sit while the birds are whistling their morning tunes and you're drinking your coffee, do you have a place you can go and feed your soul by reading the Word of God and then spending some time in prayer, communicating with God? It's vitally important. Walk with God every day in close companionship, friendship, fellowship, and do it consistently. We sang about it just a moment ago. I love the quietness of the morning, says the hymn writer. The peaceful beauty of the day. 
I love to go there to my bower and humbly bow my head and pray. You say, well, Brother Goins, I'd be embarrassed to bow my head and pray. Why? Nobody's watching. You're in your closet. It's your personal space. It's your secret place. Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 6, when you spend time in personal, private, secret devotions with God, the God who sees in secret will reward you openly. Our strength for public life, my beloved, springs largely from our diligence to spend time with God personally and privately. And don't ever be ashamed to talk to your father. He's your father. And you can speak to him. Yes, you. I'm talking to you today. Unburden your heart. You have worries, concerns. Don't hesitate to cast your cares upon him, for he cares for you. Do you have pressures and problems? Then take them to the Lord in prayer. We should never be discouraged, says the hymn writer. Take it to the Lord in prayer. How important it is that you and I walk with God every day so that when you come to the close of that day, you can say, Lord, we've had a good stroll today, haven't we? And do you know what happened to Enoch? He walked with God one day so far as the little girl told her mama. The little girl came home from Sunday school one day and said, uh, Mother, we learned about a man today who took walks with God. And her mother said, that's very interesting. What was his name? His name was Enoch. She said, well, tell me about it. She said, well, every day he would take walks with God. And one particular day they had walked and walked and talked and talked. And it came to pass that they had gone so far the sun was beginning to set, and the Lord said, Enoch, we're so far from home. We're closer to my home now than we are to yours. It would take too long to get back to your house. You might as well come home with me. And he just walked right into heaven, the little girl said. Isn't that a wonderful way to live? Every day to walk with God. Who's your companion in life? You say, well, my husband, my wife, they're my wonderful thankful that you have such a companion but if you don't and even if you do may I say each of our companions should be Enoch's companion spend the day walking with the Lord talking to him communing with him meditating on his word talking to him saying thank you Lord for this beautiful day that you've given us when you hear a bird singing just marvel at the fact that God gave that bird such a beautiful song when you see a sunset, my beloved, see the Creator's handiwork in the beauties of nature. And as you go through your day, think about what Christ has done for you. And think about what you know about the attributes of God, the character of God from the Bible. Think about your problems and roll them over on Him. And then when He solves a problem and answers your prayer, don't hesitate to say, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for answered prayer. You say, well, Enoch walked with God. Can I do that? Indeed, my friends, like Enoch, in spite of the ungodly age in which we live, we must make a close walk with God our daily priority. For our faith should govern the way we approach each moment and each day. I like the hymn by William Cowper. Oh, for a closer walk with God. That's his prayer a calm and heavenly frame, a purer light to mark the road that leads me to the Lamb. And he says, may the dearest idol that I have known, whatever that idol be, Lord, help me to take it from its throne. 
I want to dethrone my idols and worship only thee. So shall my walk be close with God. Yes, my friends, our faith should govern our worship. Our faith should determine every nuance of our daily lives, and our faith should control our approach to the future. That's the story of Noah, and we'll have to pick up with that, God willing, next time. The bottom line of our message today is, by faith Abel worshipped, by faith Enoch walked, and by faith Noah worked with godly reverence to prepare for his family a place of safety from a coming day of judgment. Faith is the canopy that covers all of our lives. And may we each ask ourselves the question today, is my faith governing my worship? Am I worshiping according to God's word? Is my faith permeating my daily walk? And is my approach to the unseen future built upon the reality of God's word, God's presence, and God's righteousness? If it is, my beloved, then you are part of the godly remnant, the just who live by faith.